0: Welcome to the spectator PM podcast. I'm Aubrey Gulick and today I'm joined by Ellie Gardy an associate editor over at the American spectator. Ellie will be replacing Luther, who is headed on to other pastures at national review. He's now their night editor and weekend editor. So if you want to continue to follow his work, you can head over there and see what he's up to. In the meantime, we have Ellie Gardy, um, who's amazing. So Ellie, welcome onto the podcast. Glad to be here. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about a few different things. Um, one of them is going to be the the fact that USA Boxing um, wrote a rule down in 2022 that allowed transgender, um, well, men who identify as women, to compete against women um, in boxing matches. And it just went into effect on January 1st. And so there's been a lot of public backlash against it um, because it's kind of... I mean, it's so obviously problematic, right? Like you have men facing down women, men who are on estrogen for sure, but still like are still way stronger than women. So.
1: Yeah, because when you have swimming and you have the men going against the women, the men crush the women in the swim time. But here the men are just beating up the women until they're bloody. Not (laughs) a good image. (laughs)
0: Right. And it's like, you would think that this would be a really bad image. And I think some of it, I was actually just thinking about this, the fact that like, this ruling came down in 2022, right? So that was, you know, a bit ago. And we've actually kind of, I mean, we've, we've moved from where we were in 2022, I think it was much more widely acceptable then than it is now. Now people are starting to second guess the woke agenda that's like, you know, we really should have, you know, the the equality between like transgender women are women are actually women, and people are starting to be like, uh, no, actually they're they're really not, and that's something that's changed since twenty twenty two. So it'll be interesting to see how long this actually lasts, because I kind of suspect it won't.
1: So, right after enough women get beat up, and that makes the rounds around social media might dampen support I mean,
0: you really only need like one match right where like one woman gets horrifically beaten up by you know some guy pretending to be a woman in a boxing ring to go viral on YouTube or whatever and or Twitter and and it will for sure and then they're gonna have to rescind that so it it'll be really interesting um to see where it goes but unfortunate for the poor women <laughs> You know, um, uh, that being said, I think there's some hope because. The ruling doesn't actually apply to kids. Right. So like teenage boys cannot compete against teenage girls. So there's even some like tacit, you know, recognition that, I mean, guys are different than girls and kids at least, you know, shouldn't be competing that way um, whether or not
1: maybe we made some progress here people are recognizing maybe we shouldn't be endorsing children receiving cross-sex hormones and going on certain and getting surgeries right
0: right yeah i I mean like because to to allow kids to compete that way would be to essentially say like you know we're endorsing this kind of behavior from the medical system and that that would be i mean it's horrific when it does happen. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) Except not everyone is understanding that this is problematic for children because last week, Ohio governor Mike DeWine vetoed a bill that would have prohibited children from receiving cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers and surgeries. Right.
0: Yeah. And I, Liliana Zalaistra, um, recently wrote a piece about this issue for us, um, and the bill that DeWine vetoed and his reasoning for it. And I mean, it's kind of really horrific. Um, he, I mean, he essentially stays, tries to posit this position of his as like the pro-life position, because he claims if these kids don't get these surgeries, you know, they're going to commit suicide or whatever, which is a lie the left has been, you know, peddling for years. So it's, you know, it's horribly problematic um, as far as Ohio is concerned. Although that being said, I think the legislature in Ohio is planning on vetoing it. It definitely passed by wide wide enough margins that I think they can um, potentially do so. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. um,
1: Yeah. Right. It's just unbelievable how behind the times he is as a Republican governor to not recognize how harmful this is for kids. And so he says, oh, I want to get rid of surgeries like phalloplasties for kids. But he thinks that kids should be able to be pumped with testosterone. We need to give testosterone to 12 year old girls. And he, you know, he's justifying this as, oh, it's the, the parents' decision. He says, um, these are gut wrenching decisions that should be made by parents and should be informed by teams of doctors who are advising them of course we all know this is just child abuse i don't know why he uh can't realize that but right. he's had some issues before so
0: yeah he's been he's been behind as a republican governor i mean for years i think covid was the first time I mean, COVID was probably the first time I, as an Ohioan, like actually paid attention to DeWine. Um, mostly because he was so extreme in the COVID lockdowns. Yeah. Like he's one of the worst governors out there. And he's a Republican and a conservative, well, claims to be a conservative anyway. And, you know, that it, it can it's hugely problematic. Um, and yeah. it was pro-
1: and it's still- I actually uh, wrote an article where I ranked the worst governors on COVID, and the worst governor was Mike DeWine, because he led the charge to close schools. He was the first Republican governor to do so. So once he did that, all the other Republican governors got on board and shuttered schools, and DeSantis closed schools, and Christy Noam, who puts herself out to be the Anti-COVID governor, she closed schools, and he really started it. So Dewine has been responsible for a lot of our problems already.
0: Yeah, he's bad on so many fronts. So, yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see if the legislature vetoes the bill. I kind of suspect they will, um, which would be, which would be fantastic news for Ohio, especially after a year that was really not a great year in a state i mean the whole issue one and marijuana is now legal it's it's a whole deal Um,
1: yeah so yes but um there has been some good news on the dei front on tuesday claudine gay resigned from her position as harvard's president so um aubrey did this surprise you (laughs)
0: Not at all, actually. I, I was kind of shocked that she didn't do it sooner. Like as soon as the plagiarism allegations came out, like mid-December, I was like, oh, that, that seems like a death knell to me. Um, mostly maybe because my professors would always start every, like every class session. It was like, if you plagiarize, we will kick you out of the school. So it's like, to me, it's like academic plagiarism is a huge deal. If you you know if you're plagiarizing your academic work stealing somebody else's intellectual property and passing it off as your own like that's a huge problem i mean whether or not i would mean, like she had way more issues than just plagiarism obviously but like yeah she i i, I was kind of surprised it didn't happen a bit sooner um
1: i think some. Sometimes- Oh, go ahead. It wasn't just one example of plagiarism. This was dozens. And every few days, there were more examples that came out. And it was her entire body of work, basically. There were a few papers where they couldn't find anything. But it was most papers. Oh, look, this sentence is from this guy. And even in her acknowledgments, she plagiarized someone. She couldn't thank people without taking Uh other people's work. So it's just absolutely embarrassing for Harvard, which puts itself out to be the premier academic institution of the world. Right.
0: Yeah. And yeah, you would think that they would have been a lot more careful about who they picked for president. I mean, like it's not it can't be that hard to check for plagiarism. I mean, There are a million AI features out there. You just plug it into the internet and you're like, is this sentence somewhere else? Ah, yes, it is. Okay.
1: (laughs) But they didn't care about her academic work. That wasn't a factor because all that mattered for her was that she was this huge DEI woke person who led Harvard's DAI charge after the death of George Floyd. Right.
0: Right. And well, and, and there's more to the story than just like, like the plagiarism, like you've done quite a bit of reporting on this. So yeah, like the, there's a, there's much more context to it. um Would you mind filling us in a little bit, like what led up to this resignation even before like the plagiarism accusations?
1: Right. So Claudine Gay only had a tenure of about six months. So she came in and then in October, Hamas attacked Israeli civilians. And the very next day, this coalition of crazy uh, Palestinian liberation people at Harvard put out this statement blaming Israel for the terrorist attacks. And Claudine Gay was very slow to denounce that. She was slow to voice support for Israel. And so a lot of donors were very upset about this. And there was a big backlash. And so then she came out and did the whole apology and voiced strong support for Israel, but still was kind of saying, oh, well, you know, you they have this justification for saying what they're saying. And, and then uh, all the uh, pro-Palestine people were going around campus with anti-Semitic chants and disrupting classes. And she wasn't really reacting. So that was a whole problem that caused a lot of concern. But then when she testified before Congress, she equivocated on the question of whether or not Harvard would punish students who call for genocide against the Jews. So that was pretty blatantly uh, wrong. And the whole country was a little woken up to what was going on with uh, the radical ideology on college campuses. So that really pushed her into a corner, but. She has so much support from her fellow ideologues that they stood behind her and it seemed like she was going to stay, even though um, Elizabeth McGill, the president of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, was forced to resign as a result of her testimony. But Claudine Gay stayed on and it was only the plagiarism charges that just made it too embarrassing for her to stay in office.
0: Right. 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 Well, and I think like even the day she was she submitted her. Well, I guess she hasn't she hasn't technically like completed the resignation process yet. But she like announced that she was resigning right on Tuesday. And I think I was reading the Washington Free Beacon had like found, I think, six more examples of plagiarism. And some people think that was like that was a straw that broke the camel's back figuratively. Right. Because then the letter came out, although I kind of suspect she'd written it over break, actually.
1: (laughs) well, they probably knew more was coming and maybe more will come or more might have come if she hadn't resigned.
0: Right. Yeah. No. And I, I mean, well, she, she is staying on the faculty at Harvard. So it's like it, it's not like she's just leaving the institution, Um. even though. You would think that with like such significant plagiarism, you know, accusations, she would be Harvard would be interested in getting rid of her entirely. Um, but apparently not. They're just shifting yeah. her out of the public view they is had not- a
1: very fishy response to the plagiarism allegations. They had some sort of committee look into it, but they didn't reveal who was on the committee or what exactly it was, and they didn't release the findings. They just said, Oh, well, they found that it was, you know, it it was a problem, but it wasn't bad misconduct, and it wasn't, you know with malintent so we're just going to kind of issue a couple of uh, corrections about how she was how she cited people but that's not the process at harvard students are held to a much higher standard so the students were upset about how she had been treated with the plagiarism allegations and people were saying oh it feels like a farce uh, Signing Harvard's honor pledge right before I take my final exams, knowing that uh, Claudine Gay gets a pre pass.
0: Right. Yeah. And yeah, it it feels like you'd you'd need a lot more than just a few corrections. Like at this point, it's pretty clear that plagiarism for her is, you know, a routine thing. It's not like accidentally plagiarized. Um, (laughs) Yeah, this is
1: 25 years of. Repeatedly doing
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, moving on from US news into more uh international news, I guess. Uh the Vatican released a press um statement clarifying Fiducia Suplicans, the controversial document that came out uh last month on December eighteenth, I think, about um essentially saying that uh priests could bless homosexual couples or couples in irregular relationships. So the church doesn't recognize divorce. And so those would include couples that, you know, received a civil marriage after getting a divorce, even though they hadn't yet received an annulment. So priests could bless those couples. Although the church clarified that, you know, this isn't, we're we're not redefining marriage here. We're just, um, you know, blessing them as individuals. And it's non-liturgical. Right. And so, there's been enough backlash around the world in the United States and in Ukraine and in Africa, especially um, where bishops have been like, okay, we're not going to do this in our diocese um, because we think that's not safe. And it leads to confusion and well, and in some, you know, some African countries, it's not even legal. Right. And so the Vatican essentially said in the clarification document, like, you know, bishops have the ability to make that decision, right? Like if, if that's, if not a pastorally wise thing to do, then don't do it. Um, they also clarified things like, you know, the church sees a difference between a homosexual couple and a homosexual union. So blessing the individuals in the union is different than blessing and, you know, ratifying the union, which is not a marriage. Um. So yeah, there were a lot of interesting
1: updates with that. Yeah, it's highly unusual for the Vatican to come forward with a clarification like this. Um, It's a real recognition of the amount of backlash there has been to it. So they're really acknowledging, wow, we have a lot of bishops conferences across the world who are really voicing their discontent, and they recognize they had to do something.
0: Right, right. And I think you had a good point about this earlier, if you want to get into it a bit more, but just like, in the past, I think you, you were talking about the fact that Pope Francis um, has seen a lot of this kind of backlash as quintessentially an American problem, right?
1: And in this yeah, situation- now it's coming from the bishops conferences in Africa and in Ukraine. And so it requires a different strategy on the part of Pope Francis. Um, he's portrayed a lot of, you know, some criticisms of his papacy as being, you know, um, job by conservative americans but this is more um an international backlash
0: right and 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 in some ways as it should be like you read through fiducius duplicons and there are some phrases in there and you can see people on the far left twisting them in certain ways i mean for instance like the ap the day of you know published an article that was i, th- I think the headline was something like the vatican permits homosexual unions to be blessed which is not at all you know clear
1: in the document yeah it states this is not homosexual unions we're blessing the people right
0: and i think there was something else that was really interesting about the clarification it so in the in the prologue to fiducia the um the Archbishop Fernandez, who runs the dicastery um, for a faith, essentially stated, "Like, yeah, we're we're doing something somewhat novel here, right? And the clarification was pointing out, like, the novel thing is not that you can bless people who you know are not who are in a state of sin, you know, outside of a liturgical function. It's the novelty here is that we're making a clearer distinction between, you know, liturgical blessings and non-liturgical blessings." And I think that that distinction was lost on a lot of people in the Catholic Church who are, you know, already injured by things that the Vatican has said in the past or are predisposed to think negatively of what's going on um, or don't like Fernandez. And there are plenty of reasons not to like Fernandez. (laughs) Right. So,
1: yeah, the Vatican was clear that it's upholding the church's teaching on marriage It just created confusion because there's all these different sides Mm -hmm. who want to see same-sex blessings or don't want to see certain things and because of the confusion it's created a greater controversy but yeah it's interesting that uh, in the clarification document that the vatican issued today they're really stressing the novelty of the ritual blessings that are you know there's a specific prayer and it's with vestments and it's, you know, this is an appointed right versus just a kind of casual um, prayer over a person for bless good blessings and that they follow God in their life. And, and an interesting thing about the clarification is they actually provide a specific formula for these casual blessings. And it's like, oh, may God bless you and give you good health. And then one of the parts of this informal blessing is and may you, uh, live out God's will for your life, or it's like, may your life be according to God's will. And it's kind of saying like, the blessing should acknowledge that we want to have the person's life in line with the teachings of Christ. Right.
0: And, and in in some ways, it's kind of undermining like the homosexual lifestyle, right? Like, cause the homosexual, homosexuality as a, you know, if you're living in a homosexual relationship, like that's, the church teaches that that's not okay right like that's a sin That's a sinful lifestyle so in some ways it's like encouraging them to and drawing them towards conversion but rather than like condemning their lifestyle outright it's like asking god to lead them you know
1: closer to him um which yeah, but is- people are taking the document and they're using it to perform what looks like a rite in a church or with vestments and they're contradicting what the document says and you know people might think that the way that the document came out you know gave people this opportunity and created this public disaster of everyone all the bishops voicing their discontent and all the media reporting that the church is now blessing unions and so it's been a bit of a bungled rollout
0: right. Well, and there's definitely been priests on the left, like Father James Martin, for instance, who have done very public blessings of homosexual, you know, couples since then that look an awful lot. Like, you know, they're conflating it with justifying the relationship, which is, I mean, obviously problematic. Um, But I think that, I mean, like, ultimately the blame for that kind of act lies with the individuals doing it. Yeah. Even if, rome may have made it a little easier for them to you know make an excuse to do it
1: yeah but rome will definitely have to defend itself against the accusation that it created this confusion for sure yeah it um, will be interesting to see how the vatican responds to people who go against the guidance um by blessing same-sex couples in a way that is not according to the document like you know How they proceed with people who do investments or in a sanctuary and see if they just kind of let it go and let it become a practice of the church by effect and not, you know, it's not really supposed to be happening, but it is happening or see if they crack down on it. And a big test will be what happens in Germany. So Germany said that they were going to give out handouts that gave a blessing for same-sex couples after uh, the Vatican came out with the document And so that seems to be contrary to the document specification, since it says there can't be a set prayer. It's just kind of supposed to be a formal or informal private thing where you just bless people. You're not supposed to have a prayer for uh, blessings for same-sex couples.
0: Right. And like a word that they use all over the document is spontaneous. And there's not really anything spontaneous if you have a printed prayer, right, of the blessing you're administering. So yeah, that'll be interesting to see if they crack down on that. Um, in many ways, it's an opportunity for bishops to, you know, to evangelize or to um, clarify what the church teaches among their parishioners, especially like in situations where you know individual priests are performing like ritualized blessings. Like how a bishop responds, or how you know the local cardinal responds or eventually the Vatican is going to be really important. It could be an opportunity to clarify, you know, this is what the church teaches. It's just up to the bishops to make it, to make of that opportunity what they can or will. So.
1: So uh, let's discuss some of our uh, favorite articles this week from the American Spectator. So what have you been reading, Aubrey?
0: So one of the pieces I've well i've been I've been really looking forward to watching the Boys in the Boat movie that came out over Christmas. and so Lou Aguilar um did a review of it called The Boys in the Shaky Boat, which did not exactly encourage me to go look <laughs> to watch the movie in theaters, but um I think I probably still will. I really, really enjoyed the novel and Lou's um Lou's argument is essentially that the George Clooney did not do a great job with it that it's kind of boring it kind of drags in places but then he's like well except that this film is so like so anti-woke in so many aspects I mean like it's a bunch of white boys from the west coast who are going up against ivy league schools defeating them and then eventually going to Germany where they you know win olympic gold against all odds it's like it's such an anti-hollywood story that it's worth watching just for that right like it's it, i mean originally it's just such a great story he just doesn't think it's well done so anyway it was a fascinating review to, to read so definitely go. what have you been reading
1: so stephen greenhut has a piece out today on a recent washington post article so the Washington Post had this big expose, blaming conservatives for the homelessness crisis, and Green Hut exposes for us that this is really the liberals who have caused this. Since uh, over the past two decades, they've pursued this uh, housing first policy to respond to homelessness, which basically means anyone on the street they believe should immediately be given. Free, permanent housing. Like if you're on the street, you get a free apartment. No questions asked. We demand nothing of you. This is your apartment forever. And that's the strategy they've pursued. And it's based on, you know, radicalism and socialistic ideas. And they've deployed it across the United States. And and especially in California. And San Francisco has uh, executed it quite well. Uh, In terms of having many people get free apartments, but um, it turns out that giving someone a free apartment just invites other people to come get free apartments. So there have been studies done that have shown that each free apartment they give away to a homeless person gets 0.1 person off the street. Mm. So you have to give away 10 free apartments to get one person off the street. So it turns out that's not very effective, but uh, Stephen Greenhut breaks it down in his article today
0: yeah so definitely worth uh checking out um yeah so that was all we have for today thank you for listening to spectator pm podcast definitely like the podcast subscribe um we'll be back next week until next time
1: thanks for joining us